A Martin Air DC-8 is landing in Sri Lanka on its way to Jeddah when they crash. What caused this flight to crash into a mountain? Welcome back to the Heartlandings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, Hello. hey, 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 hey. Hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Hey. So we're in a dark room because <laughs> all the lights are broken. Apparently. We have somehow okay. managed to kill every single <laughs> light source. Okay. So the fan is really tall. It's really up there. And it's been dead for the better part of a year and some now. And ADHD, <laughs> it's out of sight, out of mind, because we don't come up here except a podcast. So, which actually, to be fair, during the summer, we don't need it. No. Because it's usually cause it light up in here. light enough. Yeah. But, but now it's getting darker. Now it's dark outside again, and now we need a light. And there's a, there's a couple of lights, like, outside of the podcast room that bleed in, but there's been this floor lamp that we've been using instead, which is fine. Floor lamp is fine. Nick's had it since elementary school. And I had been using it just fine, no problem. Even we used it last week and turned it off and everything, and now the knob on it just spins. It no it longer broken. clicks. It no longer clicks, so it has nothing to do with the bulb. The lamp is literally just shut. The ignition yes. what? is broken. Which, by the way, that lamp is supposed to have two bulbs on it, but it doesn't. There's one that also points down. Oh, weird. You just never noticed. Oh, no. But... Yeah, doesn't work. Where? So that lamp is now going away. I've had it long enough anyway. And it's time for a new one. So fun stuff. So instead, we've got a desk lamp lighting up the room. Just, just And our little battery-powered crafting lights. Yeah, which are pretty powerful, man. They I wish they, they had are. a dimming setting. I like it because I can see. Anyway, so update. I heard from a few people that you can't open the newsletter when I send it to you. Which is weird. Uh, so I have now put them on the website. The one from June, July, August, September, and also October is up on the website. You should be able to click on a button and it'll open the PDF. Yeah. I can't change it from the PDF it's in. So if you can't open it from there, I don't know what to do. That That's like a software issue on your end, not us. Yeah, because a lot but, of people are opening it okay. We still open it okay when it sends a copy to usually yeah. us. Well, I send a copy to us. Yes, so. But yeah, I, I've never had any issues not being able to open it or anything like that, so. But know that there is now a way that you can acquire Access it the newsletter anyways. without Having to giving sign us up? your email. Yeah. If I you're mean, weird about that for if, whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, if you gave us your email, you'll get it in your email on the 1st of October. But if you have not done so, you should be able to procure it, get it from and the read website. It yes, from the website. Yes, it'll be under the newsletters tab on the website. So yeah, I think that's all the housekeeping. There's really not too much else. Um, not that I can think of anyway. We are up to date on putting recommendations on the list, so yes. I know they're so, all. They're so all once out again, there. if you have not heard back from us for whatever reason, please. Nag us. Um, the only one that I don't know about is Kevin asked about the air balloon. Yes. Air balloons. Yes. We have to look at that stuff separately and decide on that. 
because there's not like reports. Yeah, it could be. It. it could be interesting though. It would be such a different thing for us. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe no, someday. I'm, I'm gonna let you guys make that decision because. Yeah. But reports have become my comfort zone. <laughs> I know they're such a comfort zone. That's for sure. So I will let you guys make that decision, and we can email Kevin after that because he had emailed us last week, and I was like, we will get back to you. We don't know yet. Yeah, we're not sure yet. We will decide on that. Yeah. So, all right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Martin Air Flight 138. Thank you to Joseph for recommending this. Thanks, Joseph. Thanks, Joseph. I think it's been a while since we've done one of your recommendations. So. Nope. Nope. It it's been three weeks. Really... Oh, there was another one. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Oh, ago. that's right. That's and, right. And, no, and another that. right before that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now. I remember that. Yep, yep, yep. No, good. Great. Thanks. This accident occurred on December 4th of 1974. This is going to be a short one. Fair warning. This is not an ICAO compliant report. No. I have complaints. It was also not done by, like, an investigative body, so I kind of understand. We'll talk about it. But, it, yeah, it's going to be a, a shortish episode. It's, it has all of the parts. They're just not very long. <laughs> That's all. This was a Douglas DC-855. It's been a while since we've talked about a DC-8. Yes, it has been a while since we talked about a DC-8. We'll be talking about another one in, like, a month. Cool. The DC-8, for those that need a reminder. Had problems. Uh, yeah. Just like every other DC aircraft that existed. Pretty much. The DC-10 was worse. The DC-8 definitely had some issues and had some pretty nasty accidents in its time. We'll talk about it. So did the 9, <laughs> and so did the 10. Yeah. So, not earning the best but, of reputations. However... But also, so did the 70s. Right. This and was the, <laughs> the 80s. Right. This Turns particularly out. was the 70s, and we'll talk about it, but this accident very much contributed to the problem of the 70s. So, the DC-8, for those that need a reminder, is a quad-engine aircraft. It was one of the first aircraft in the jet age, one of the first airliners in the jet age that was truly successful. The Comet and the Caravel were obviously the early jet aircraft, but they were really just the jumping off point, we'll say, because they weren't wildly successful the way that the 707 and the DC-8 were. Well, uh, you know, the Comet blew up a few times. Well, yes. And also you talk about the DC-8 and the 707, and they're literally like four times the size of aircraft with eight times the range comparatively. Right. And they were produced just a few years after the Comet and the, the uh, Caravel. So it pretty much made them obsolete very shortly after they <laughs> were produced. So that's why the DC-8 was so widely used, very popular, and as a matter of fact, there are still a few flying around, but... Usually for, like, cargo, right? Yes, there's a few cargo, although there's one flown by... Uh, shoot, I can't remember that. There's one flown by NASA that floats around the U.S., cool. and then there's another one that is a one-of-a-kind with its engine and body configuration that is flown by the... Samaritan's Purse? Is that what it is? It's per something purse. I don't remember. Samaritan's Purse. Yeah, Samaritan's Purse. See? Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. And it floats around, and it's been through Colorado a few times. NASA's was just here last month, as a matter of fact. It flew right over Centennial, did a low pass over Centennial. Oh, side tangent. Sorry. Yes? I keep forgetting to bring this up. There was a DC-3 that flew over rehearsal the other day. Oh, cool. Cool. And, like... We all stopped, and Brendan looked up, and he was like, it's a DC-3, and I was like, yeah. holy 
<laughs> what? That's the one based out of Erie. Cool. This is where it lives. Um, yeah, it was going to Centennial. Yep. And so I, I took a couple pictures of it, but I was like, holy. Yeah, oh. it goes to Centennial regularly because it's part of the group that helps with, they do a lot of events at the the Wings of the Rockies. Oh, okay. And the part that's there. So they do little events, little fly-in events there all the time, and they bring the DC-3 down to Centennial all the time. Tangent of your tangent. Band of Brothers is now on Netflix, even mm-hmm. though it's an HBO show. Mm-hmm. Whatever. So we were watching the first episode, which is when they're flying in for D-Day mm-hmm. to Normandy. Mm-hmm. And because they had the HBO budget. Yeah, they had a bunch of actual DC-3s. And got all the footage of like the air filled with DC-3s. Mm-hmm. Freaking cool. Yes. Okay, sorry, continue. Anyways, continuing. This being the 55 variant of the DC-8 means it is a shorter fuselage, but it was actually a longer range version of the DC-8 versus the originals, the 10s and the 30s. This one had the tail number Papa Hotel-Mike Bravo Hotel. The 55 also had a different engine type that was ever so slightly quieter, but also more efficient. I'm not going to say it was quiet. None of the DC-8s were ever quiet. Although they did put some better engines on the 80s that were a little bit quieter. It's like them calling the 27 a whisper jet, but it's still really loud <laughs> yeah. on the inside. It's loud inside and outside. That thing goes by and it's like sounds like a freaking rocket. And then there's the A320neo, which is, you know, too quiet. Yes. I would argue the 220 is even quieter. I can have a conversation to, with somebody while that airplane is like pulling into the gate. Like, I don't have to yell. I can have a decent conversation with somebody. Because that airplane is just not that loud. Anyways, uh, this was uh, this this is weird. So Martin Air, a little bit of preface. Martin Air is a Dutch airline. Was a Dutch airline. Okay, that means they don't exist anymore, right? They um, don't. However, there is still this little itty bitty offshoot of Martin Air's branding that exists within KLM. Oh, still. It's K- a, well, KLM is yes. a Dutch airline, right? Yes, and KLM has been around longer. Yes. And is still more successful. However, Martin Air definitely had its day. It was a very successful airline for quite some time, actually. So it is currently classified as a Dutch cargo and former passenger airline headquartered at Schiphol and is a subsidiary of Air France KLM. Right. And that's the whole thing. So they basically sucked them in entirely. Their branding still exists on their cargo airplanes, but it'll be a KLM airplane with like a Martin Air badge. On the side? They've been purely cargo since 2011. Yes. Correct. But they really just don't, not, they don't exist as their own thing anymore. But they were founded in 1958. So, oh. a hot minute ago. Yep. They've been what? around for a long time. So, all of that to say, this, this gets strange. And this sounds strange. Because this is a Dutch airline. And at the time, a pretty successful one. But this flight was from Surabaya in Indonesia to Colombo in Sri Lanka, to Jeddah in Saudi Arabia, and that's it. You might notice that there's not any Amsterdam there, in there's there. There's no Dutch in Nor there. Nor is there any yeah, Dutch at all. There's no Dutch territories whatsoever. So you're, I'm sure you're wondering. Well, no, because Indonesia was a Dutch territory, wasn't it? Not in the 70s. Well, no, not in, <laughs> I'm not saying in the 70s. And actually, I don't think they were. I don't... Was it Malaysia? <laughs> there's some... There was some... Islands down there that the Dutch did have colonies in, I thought. I could be wrong. The Dutch East Indies, also known as the Netherlands East Indies, was a Dutch colony that later became Indonesia. Okay, oh, so there you go. You. 
So it wasn't in Egypt. See, but I don't like in 1949, which is later in history than I thought it would be. Sure. But in the 70s, it wasn't. It was Indonesia. It was Indonesia. No, but I, I mean, like, kind of yes. like trying to fill in the gaps, right? And that's like, fair. The Netherlands took over weird parts of the world. Yes, they did. But here's because the, the other parts were already taken over by the other countries. Pretty much, they were like, we need to do some dominating, and they just dominated things that everybody else wasn't paying attention to. Yeah. <laughs> but they took they and Portugal took the spices. Yes, they did. They're like, you got spices, mm-hmm. we got you. But then the British took India and really took the spices, and they still like they still consider curry their thing. Just it, in 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 England, yeah, it's a very 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 common dish. It's as common as fish and chips. It's not, though. But it's, it's their from thing now. India. Yeah, and they took it because they owned India for a while, for yeah, a long time. Yes, <laughs> they did, but it's still from India. Yes. It's but not a British thing. Uh, they think it is now. It's not. <laughs> You're wrong. And your country sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't suck, don't worry. Mostly. Took over, like, 90% of the world just because yeah. they could. What seems British but isn't actually British? Everything in the British History Museum. Yeah. Every, everything. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything that came from a different continent yes. than Europe. Yes. A.K.A. Canada? India? That museum has donations by way of conquering. <laughs> Pretty much entirely. Anyways, the Indonesia-Dutch thing has absolutely nothing to do with this, by the way. No, I was just trying to make a connection. On why maybe they'd start in Indonesia? We will talk about it in just a minute. Oh, okay. Well, never mind then. Before that, let's do the crew. Let's not. They're dead. The captain was Hendrik Lem. L-A-M-M-E. It was. Oh, I thought we were pronouncing that lame. That would be L-A-M-E. <laughs> I don't know. Lemay? He was 58 years old at the time. He was... He had 26,770 hours total, wow. making him one of the most experienced captains we have talked about, or pilots, period, we have talked about on the podcast. That Someone should do a backlog check to tell us who actually was the most experienced I, I know captain. we had a 27,000, but I don't remember who it was. I don't remember which flight it was. Of course we wouldn't remember what flight it was. And I feel like we had maybe one 28 or 29, but I don't remember that far. I, I th- I'm pretty sure we've had a 28. I just don't remember. Mm-hmm. But that's but, still, this one's still up there. Believe me, this one is still way up there. That's a lot of, a lot of hours. About 4,000 of his hours were on the DC-8. So that's not the problem. It is a, that is a not small number of hours in any regard. The first officer was Robert Blomsma. Blomsma? Blomsma? B-L-O-M-S-M-A. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's M-S-M-A. Blomsma. No, that's an unfortunate last name. Yes. He was 33 years old, and he was quite on the opposite end of the spectrum. He had 2,480 hours total, of which... 47. 47. Did it tell you the nationalities of the pilots? Uh, They're all Dutch. Dutch. They're all Dutch. They're Dutch? Mm -hmm. Okay. From the spellings of their last names, I can tell you that they're all Dutch, for sure. Okay. It was confirmed that they were Dutch. They were some of the only Dutch people on board. Yes. Yeah, 47 of his hours were on the DC-8. He was new. (laughs) And very, very new. But flying with the most experienced captain on the DC-8, probably in the entire industry at the time. If not close. How many total hours did he have? 2,480. Okay, well, he still had, like... He had hours. What we consider now is the industry standard to be a commercial pilot, so... Meanwhile, the flight engineer was Johannesburg. 
<laughs> that is the most Dutch name yep. I have ever Wid- heard. Wijnands. Yeah, it's Dutch. Uh-huh. It's Dutch. It's Dutch. I, I don't know. I probably butchered the crap out of that last name, but it was W-I-J-N-A-N-D-S. I don't. I don't. Anyways, okay. he was very middle of the road. He had 6,866 hours total, of which about 3,000 were on okay. VC-8 experienced. Now we'll get to the part about why this flight seems so strange. This was a flight operated on behalf of Garuda Indonesia. Oh, okay. As part of the Indonesian Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca. Oh. So fun fact, I don't know if we talked about Mecca before, but Mm -hmm. um, Mecca is a, it has to do with the Muslim religion. Mm -hmm. When you practice Islam, you go, Mm -hmm. there's a pilgrimage once a year to go to Mecca and you surround Mm -hmm. this giant box. It's a, it's a building. It's not a box. But it, it used to have a bunch of idols inside of it, yes. and now it does it. And there's right. a whole history behind that, and how yes. like you should only believe in Allah and all that stuff. And there's no right. idols, and they like circle around it. It's like a thing. Yes. Um, I only know a little bit about it because I had a history professor in college that mm-hmm. was super in to like Muslim how that religion works and, and how it worked. Like we definitely weren't supposed to cover it, and we definitely covered it anyway. <laughs> Because he also, like, lived in the Middle East for a good, like, period of time. Okay. So he was, like, telling us about it. But um, if you don't know anything about Mecca, that's what it is. Yeah. And it's in, it's near, I shouldn't say it's in, it's near mm-hmm. Jeddah. Yes. It's in Mecca. It is. That is yeah. what the actual city is called. Yeah. You might recall once upon a time, a very long time ago, we covered a different flight flying away from Mecca. Mm-hmm. And... That didn't that go well either. really didn't go there, well. There are some parallels here. We will talk about that later on. Oh, boy. But yeah, that's people do that. This one doesn't have people falling out of a flaming aircraft. No. You're wrong. Oh. Excuse me? You're wrong. <laughs> what? There's people that are falling out of a flaming aircraft? Not from... We will talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get there. <laughs> not for 11 miles. No, not for 11 miles. But there's a lot of other weirdly, very coincidental things about this. Because that was also a chartered flight. And it was also a DC-8. Oh. Maybe don't take a DC-8 and it was to also, Mecca. And it was also for the pilgrimage to, to from Mecca. Yeah. Mecca. Operated by an airline not from the country which it was operating. Maybe don't take a chartered DC-8 to Mecca. And the parallels don't end there, but I will get to it. Oh, no. When we get to the end. Okay. Oh, boy. I promise it's actually not that far away, because there's not a lot of notes here. (laughs) There were 182 passengers and nine crew on this flight. We're talking about the first leg, because there was a stopover in Sri Lanka. Which, by the way, is the little tiny country on the bottom of India. Yes. You don't know where Sri Lanka is. That's where it is. It's also a whole country. It is its own country. Yeah, it is not part of India. It is its own country. Yep. It's not like that island off the coast of Italy, which is still a part of Italy. Yes. Which, by the way, is Sicily. In my brain, I always mix those two up because they're both islands off the south coast of the country, and they start mm-hmm. with S. There's also Sardinia. And then there's Malta, which is like an Italian island, but it's also its own country. So, there you go. So, yes. But Sri Lanka is its own country. With a really cool flag. It yes. does have a cool flag. Actually. It has a dragon. I thought it was a lion. Was it a lion? Whatever probably. the case, it's, it's pretty cool. A lion. Yeah, it's pretty cool, whatever the case. 
The flight departed Surabaya in Indonesia at around 7 p.m. local time. The takeoff, climb, and cruise were normal. So we know it wasn't any of the beginning of this leg. There really weren't many details anywhere in the report, or on the ASN, or on the Wikipedia page that I could pull, like, for the story. There really just weren't. There weren't details. And when I say that, I know there was a portion of the analysis section that kind of had some details, but nothing worth pulling from. So to that end, that's why these notes are honestly pretty darn short. They throw in just a few communications with radio, and then pretty much it ends. So we're just going to get there. Also, the time conversion was fun because the report was in GMT. And Sri Lanka is five and a half hours off of GMT. Ew. There's a wonderful TikTok series that I've mentioned before. Yes. About time zones. Yes. And how they're dumb and stupid. Nepal Um, is one of the ones that I think is 45 minutes off of the rest of the world. But you wait the, it's like the eighth part of the series. The final part of the series is about how dumb Australia is. Yes. Yes. Because Australia is pretty dumb. Yes. Their time zones make no sense. I believe you. None. They don't match up with the time zones they're actually in at all. None. (laughs) Anyways. And then there's China, who also, like, I don't know. Is one time zone. Yes. So the poor people that wake up on the very west end of China and the sun doesn't come up until freaking 11 a.m. Because that does happen. And then it sets at, like, midnight. So, you know, whatever. Tangential. Anyways. At, and I did the math. 9.46 p.m. and 45 seconds local time in Colombo in Sri Lanka. That is correct, just for the record. The aircraft made initial contact with the Colombo approach control, stating that they were 130 miles from the airport and at 35,000 feet. The approach controller passed on weather information and then instructed the flight to contact the Colombo area controller on 119.1, that's the frequency, for descent clearance. Crew acknowledged and changed frequency. The flight was initially given instructions to descend to 15,000 feet, followed sometime later by a descent, to, a descent clearance down to 6,000 feet. 10.04 p.m. and 14 seconds, the flight was transferred back to the approach controller. The crew acknowledged and changed frequencies. They then informed the approach control that they were at 7,000 feet, descending for 6, 6,000 feet, at 14 miles out. Talk about it. Okay. A little strange. Approach control acknowledged and instructed the flight to descend to 2,000 feet and report Kilo Alpha Tango, which is an NDB. It's a waypoint along A non-directional way. beacon? Yes, a non-directional beacon. It's an NDB. More or less, it was just a waypoint along their route. Not that they couldn't use the NDB. You can. It is also a form of navigation, but it is just a waypoint along their way, basically. Or report when the airfield was in sight, and they were to expect runway 04. This was acknowledged by the crew. So they're landing in Sri Lanka? Yes. Yes. Okay. This was the last time that the flight crew would be heard from. Or not. They're not landing in Sri Lanka. Well. Not well. <laughs> not well. Okay. Not you know they ha- foreshadow. You know how they say that a good landing, it's a good landing you can walk away from, mm-hmm. and a great landing if you can use the airplane again? Yes. This was neither of those. No. Oh, God. Eyewitnesses on the ground spotted the aircraft and didn't notice anything strange about the plane. Everything seemed to be pretty normal, apart from the fact that it seemed a little low. Well, that's not good. A short time later, an impact was heard. Oh, that's also not good. A big crash. The air traffic controller attempted to contact the flight multiple times, but was unable to. Search and rescue operations were then initiated. Be it that this was the middle of the night, I would say it was probably pretty difficult to find them, because the aircraft crashed into the fifth mountain along a range known as the Sapthakanya near 
Mascalia in Sri Lanka. Mm. 40 nautical miles from the airport. Oh. The flight struck with the left wing first, sharing about a third of that wing off, and then impacted with the right wing, removing it entirely, dumping fuel entirely across the fuselage as it fell entirely in flames. So they didn't land in Sri Lanka. They crashed. They crashed in Sri Lanka. Landing is a loose term. Yes. Yeah, the separated right wing spilled fuel all the way down to the main wreckage, which ignited in the crash, the entire crash area, uh, the wreckage area, and caused a fire that engulfed the full fuselage, which was already in a lot of pieces also. So people, fire, also yes on this flight. Also yes. Also yes on this flight. When rescuers did locate the aircraft, which I could not figure out when that happened, I don't know, but they did. They found no survivors. All 191 on board perished in this accident, making this the third deadliest DC-8 accident in history, only to, I don't remember what the second one was, but the first one was the Nation Air one in Mecca, yeah. in Jeddah. And at the time, this was the second deadliest on the planet, only to a DC-10 a few months earlier. Turkish. Yes, the Turkish accident. So I, there, I found the section that I was thinking of, so I'm going to just read it. This is section 2.12, pathological report. Owing to the difficulty of the terrain at the site of the accident, only a little of the remains of the passengers and crew were recovered at the foot of the mountain range. In keeping with the religious customs of the Muslims, the remains at the site of the crash were interred by a team of volunteers. A post-mortem examination was conducted on such remains as were recovered at the foot of the mountain, and these did not reveal any indication of toxication. It was not possible to identify any human remains as belonging to the cockpit crew. Good luck. Sounds like there weren't a lot of intact human remains. Based on how they crashed, I would not be surprised. They also didn't, it sounds like, recover much from the wreckage itself, only from the foot of the mountain. Oh. So, do you have anything else? That's it. Okay. On that lovely, somber note. Sorry, for being such a major accident, it really didn't have much in the report to go on, so I don't have any more details. I really, I really don't. Sorry. But it was, at the time, again, the second deadliest in history at the time, at the time, but only barely, making 1974 a horrible year. Not the worst. Nope. But a pretty, pretty bad one. Okay. This investigation was performed by the Department of Civil Aviation of the Republic of Sri Lanka, with the assistance of the NTSB as the state of manufacture. This aircraft was equipped with a flight data recorder. However. However. And hence, I didn't have any detail. It disintegrated in the crash. Yep. Something it's not supposed to do. No. And after an intensive search by the Sri Lankan army and a host of volunteers, 130 feet of the foil from the FDR was recovered and sent to the NTSB headquarters for readout and analysis. But this proved to be futile, as the foil was all from the supply spool side of the FDR, and therefore did not contain any data from the accident flight. Given the difficulty in retrieving wreckage, initial findings were based on the damage at the site, as well as eyewitness statements. The left wing, as has been mentioned, grazed the fourth mountain, and eyewitnesses reported the aircraft was descending. This graze with the fourth mountain sheared off a third of the wing, which was found at the foot of the mountain. I don't know how tall this mountain was, but that's weird. Yep. Just before a final impact on the fifth mountain, the aircraft appeared to have banked 30 degrees to the left, yawed 15 degrees to the left, and pitched up 25 degrees based on the damage to the foliage. 
not the foliage like I almost typed in my notes. <laughs> The bank and yaw were likely resultant of the wing strike on the fourth mountain, which spilled fuel and caused a fire on that mountain. On final impact, the right wing separated and was thrown 200 feet to the right, spilling fuel everywhere. Lovely. There was a rumor in the media that the crew mistook the lights of Adams Peak or of the hydroelectric scheme at Norton Bridge for the runway lights at the airport. But this was discounted based on the last conversation with approach control. They did not have the runway in sight. Coupled with the fact that the lights on Adams Peak were not switched on until December. The lights were turned on to light the path to the peak during the pilgrim season from the end of December until May. So. Great. Lovely media reports. Yep. So great. Pure speculation and incorrect. So much so, and apparently so prevalent was this rumor that investigators specifically called it out in the report. Investigators dug into the pilot's training records, especially with regards to familiarity with the area. This was both the captain's and the first officer's first time flying this route. That bodes well. Yeah, neither one of them were familiar with it. The captain's most recent flight into Colombo had been in January of 1972 from Bangkok, and he flew out of Colombo the same time frame as well. His most recent flight in the far eastern region was in April of 1974, when he flew his first officer from Amsterdam to Abaddon, Abaddon to Kuala Lumpur, Bangkok to Dubai, Dubai to Istanbul, Istanbul to Amsterdam. For the accident flight, he was orally briefed by Captain Andres on December 1st, and he picked Captain Korsmit's brain about the route a couple of hours before departure, specifically about the route, flight prep, ground services, and hotels. Captain Andres testified that such inquiries are normal and routine and did not in any way indicate the accident captain was unfamiliar with the route. Investigators were unable to conclude if the captain had sufficient familiarity with the route, or route, depending on who you are. Conversely, let's talk about First Officer Blomsma, who would have been performing radio communications and navigation. This was his first flight on this route and in this region, and he only had 47 hours on this aircraft type. The duo's combined lack of familiarity was evident in the misreporting points by the First Officer that were then not corrected by the captain as well as using wrong frequencies at times. So they kept switching to the wrong frequencies, too. And they were told by air traffic control, report at this point, report at this point, report at this point, and they missed several of those. Yeah, they just weren't doing their thing. Okay, this is before CRM, Yes, right? yes. So is the captain the one flying the we airplane? Correct. don't know. Well, yeah, so from what we can tell, yes. So the first officer is the one that's screwing up everything. Like the youngin? Not, yeah. But the captain is also supposed to catch that. Yes, which ain't. is why I'm like, I don't get why it's such a huge issue. So it shouldn't be. The ICAO details in Annex 6 to the convention that procedure should include conducting route checks on aircrew who are due to fly on routes new to them prior to their being detailed as crew on such routes. Martin Air adopted procedures using freelance captains with worldwide experience and ascertain their proficiency via simulator or by co-piloting regular flights. And there were no written records of this. But since the accident prior to the report being published, Martinair amended this. So, basically, there's no proof that either of them had the route proficiency, knew where they were going, knew what they were supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what, like... The ICAO requires? Yeah. Well, no, but... Like, briefings and stuff are for it? Like, isn't that the whole point? Yes, but you also need to have route proficiencies before you fly a route. So you can't just 
you can, but you shouldn't just fly to an airport never having flown it before, at least in a simulator. This applies mostly to older aviation. Not that they don't do it today. They do still route proving and things, and you should... There's better classification for, like, different airports and, you know, how you're qualified to fly into them, depending on what level you're able to fly at. But at the same regard, nowadays we have GPS and better navigation and things that help us make sure that we know exactly how to operate in and out of an airport. At the time, because it was so many manual processes, it made sense that it was a much better idea to know your route and know the airport and know the procedures for that airport Yeah. before flying into it and before operating a passenger flight. At the very least, have at least one of your crew route proficient. Yes. Neither of them were. Mind you, because this is a chartered flight, that doesn't surprise me. And it didn't sound like it surprised investigators either, frankly. No, nor should it, because, again, a chartered flight, if the airline doesn't operate this route regularly, how could they possibly get experience on it? Though not causal or contributory, investigators found it concerning that there were no maintenance records for the days leading up to the accident and no navigational documentation for the flight, as the officers concerned failed to carry out this part of their duties, pointing to negligence on the part of the organization at Surabaya prior to the flight. The most recent maintenance documentation that they had was from three days prior. Which is not great. Hate that. The last major point I have... Yeah, I'm already here. The last major point I have to make is regarding the Doppler system on board this aircraft. When Martinair took delivery, they handed it over to KLM for maintenance and updating the cockpit to match the standardization and conformity of the KLM fleet. Seems like the right thing to do. Doing so meant building in a KLM standard Canadian Marconi Doppler computer indicator. Mm-hmm. However, the Doppler system that was already installed was manufactured by Bendix, and the two systems didn't exactly talk to each other properly. Specifically, the distance-to-go indicator on the Marconi indicator would count in steps of 100 nautical miles instead of the normal steps of 1 nautical mile. That's a discrepancy. Massive, too. The Aircraft Operations Manual noted, and this manual is specific to this aircraft, not like that aircraft type, no, to this specific aircraft with this specific tail number. The manual noted that the distance-to-go counter on the Doppler computer indicator is not active and it must be read on the computer controller panel that has a counter labeled miles to go. It is also mentioned in the cockpit briefing card, which was destroyed and unable to be reproduced. Oh, well. Maintenance records showed that twice crews had reported the Doppler counter indicator as faulty, and the resolution was engineers referring them to the cockpit briefing card. Investigators deemed that it would have been more appropriate to have the distance-to-go digital indicator on the Doppler computer system masked out so that crews wouldn't use it at all. Now. I just went through the entire analysis. That didn't really say what happened. Not per se, but the probable cause points to that, the last thing. Ultimately, what happened, and was not so specifically outlined, was they descended into rising terrain. Right. Seafit. Seafit, because they didn't know where they were. And it was never explicitly stated as such. And I think that's resultant of the fact that this was not an official investigation team that was up to date with such verbiage. Yeah, no, definitely not. I don't think necessarily CFIT was a term yet, but... I don't know, there were plenty of instances of it before this. 
It was a very regular occurrence in aviation. I know at one point we looked up the history of that term. Let me look. It's been a long time. The term CFIT was coined by engineers at Boeing in the late 70s. So, no, CFIT was not yet a term. But I think, in my humble opinion, having read 200-plus accident reports, that they should have focused more on the fact that the collision with terrain happened and how that might have transpired, because mm-hmm. that was not a major section of the analysis. Agreed. It was hardly mentioned at all. Yeah. It was basically like, they didn't know what they were doing. Oh, and look at this Doppler system. It didn't mention anything about descending below decision altitude. Right. Anything about that. Nope. Which is what happened. Yes. They descended below all the safe altitudes and were in the wrong place entirely, turned out. Yeah, 40 miles out. That number didn't even appear in the analysis. After they told him that we were 14 miles out, which should have been a sign when they were still at 6,000 feet and 14 miles out. By that point, you should be on final approach and no more than like 2,500. Maybe a little more, none of but that, not by six. None of that was mentioned in the analysis section. So right. I'm not saying that their analysis is wrong, but, but yeah, I it's think not it, great. it was not fl- fully fleshed out. Well, yeah. This also wasn't done by like a traditional investigative body either. Nope. I think that both the NTSB as well as, I can't recall the name of it, but whatever investigative body was in the Netherlands should have been more involved. Yes, I agree. But they weren't. From what I can tell, the extent of the NTSB's assistance was the failed FDR. That doesn't mean that was their entire thing, but that's what I could garner from the report. Right. And that's all I have. Okay. So we're gonna take a break. And then we're going to get into the stuffs of the stuffy stuffs after the stuffy stuff. Regular stuffs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back to the regular stuff. The conclusions, in place of the fly- the findings, I'll just read these out because there are not terribly many of them and they're pretty succinct, so might as well. They found that the captain held a valid license with a valid type rating. He had considerable experience on the type, the DC-8, in general, and sufficient experience on this exact aircraft in specific, this tail number. They found that the captain had no recent experience on this route, they, they keep pointing to the captain because, you know, the co-pilot or the first officer next. But at the same time, they're, they're mostly focused on him because, obviously, he's the most experienced in the cockpit. Right. And still has, technically, pilot command role on this aircraft. So it was up to him to make sure that things didn't go wrong. Yeah, everything was up to the captain to make decisions. Right. Still, at this point. Right. They found that the captain had been briefed on this route prior to departure. So they had had a briefing on it. But that's about it. That's all I knew. They found that no proper route check had been carried out prior to permitting the captain to fly on this route. Certain provisions of Chapter 9, Section 4 of Annex 6 to the Convention of International Civil Aviation had not been strictly complied with. As I said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They found that the first officer held a valid license with a valid type rating subject to a restriction for crosswind landing, which is usual in the Netherlands. He found that the first officer had little experience on the type in general and no experience on this exact aircraft at all. Which, okay, 
doesn't really matter. I mean, it that comes into play when you start talking about them the being Doppler. the not standardized yeah. things between them all. And yes, I understand that. But still. Found that the first officer had no previous experience on this route. No, really. He was new. They found that the Doppler computer system was off-standard to the Martinair DC-8 fleet and left room for misinterpretation of the distance-to-go presentation by the crew. Off-standard meaning non-standard. And yes, it was not standard for Martinair at the time. It was new. They found that the weather radar system was non-standard in the Martinair DC-8 fleet and no instructions had been included regarding this in the aircraft operations manual, thus leaving room for misinterpretation of the range markings on the screen by the crew. So. Not only was it not standard in the fleet, it also wasn't in their manuals. Which contradicts part of the analysis that said it was. Right. So we're doing great here. Yep, 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 yep. They found that there are indications that the crew relied, for the greater part, on the Doppler system to determine their distance to go, which don't. Don't do that. They found that there were shortcomings on the part of Martin Air in the maintenance of technical records pertaining to the aircraft, and to cockpit personnel in respect of route qualification. So Martin Air in general was just lacking... Documentation. Documentation in Which, all forms. from racking my brain, was not not standard for the 70s. Unfortunately, yeah. Not a lot of oversight of the airlines back then. They found that the officers responsible for the organization at Surabaya pertaining to this flight displayed a certain degree of negligence and that they failed to retain copies of maintenance records and navigational documentation relevant to this flight. So anything related to dispatching this flight, they didn't keep records of, which is also a no-no in the industry. They found that the captain and first officer were unaware of the correct reporting points in the Colombo flight information region. They didn't know where they needed to report. report in, even though that is an important thing to know. And the last finding... They found that there are no indications of a major pre-crash failure of the aircraft or of its systems, nor of any pre-crash fire. So the airplane was controlled, was controlled in all forms. It was intact and then it impacted terrain. And that was that was when all things went wrong. And as with most instances of CFIT, again, though not yet coined, it was pilot error. Yes. That doesn't mean all of them are that way. It's usually... Pilot error. Sometimes it's a mix of navigational issues. Yes. That have to do with like faulty DMEs or whatever. Right. CFIT in and of itself is not a cause. CFIT is a result. Correct. Of yeah. something. Yeah. That's the part that we never really talk about. While CFIT always ends up in the probable cause in instances like this, CFIT is not the cause. But, CFIT is the result of something that happened. But it is such a specific result that has happened so much through history yes. that it is. A phenomenon that has been studied. Very much so. And still needs to be, to be honest, because the GA world is unfortunately still very full of CFIT. Airlines, not as much, obviously. Well, they happen. Aircraft are more... Way more advanced now. Even GA aircraft are generally more advanced and they're capable of not doing that. Robust, one might say. Yes. They have better systems and such. All right. The probable causes. This accident occurred following collision with rising terrain. They said it there. Yep. As the crew descended the aircraft below safe altitude owing to incorrect identification of their position vis-a-vis -vis the airport. In relation to the airport. This investigation is of the opinion that this was the result of dependence on Doppler and weather radar systems on board that aircraft, which left room for misinterpretation. That's it. They wrote. So they blamed it on the Doppler. I blame it on their lack of route. Knowledge. It's a little bit of everything. 
again, I'm still not a huge fan of the fact that they brought in the rising terrain part in the cause. Right, because it's not a cause. And to that end, also, I don't feel like this was complete enough in my no. mind. I don't feel like there was enough because obviously they also didn't have they didn't the have recorders the, or the wreckage. Right, or the wreckage. The wreckage was very remote and hard to get to. Yes, it was. And burned. So destroyed. Completely. And not so, having the recorders really, 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 really hampered this. Really hampered this. I don't think that it necessarily warrants like a whole new post investigation and report like no. that Aer Lingus flight did. But it does leave something to be desired. Yes. The whole thing with that is, of course, aviation has changed vastly since then, and so the issue of CFIT as a whole doesn't exist really in airlines anymore. I am glad this was suggested, but mm-hmm. I also think that we have the experience and reputation to be able to criticize this report. Yes, it the investigation was not done well. I mean, yes, we are Monday quarterbacking, yes. but... At the same time. But what they came up with, and don't get me wrong, it's not that it's not important, but what they came up with as a whole, I feel like with a captain that experienced, that cannot be the only thing that went wrong in that cockpit. That cannot be what led them to the wrong place. I wish they would have mentioned more the shortcomings that prevented them from being able to establish more. Right. They could have recommended more about the recorder. Mm-hmm. Which we'll dive into the recommendations here now. There's, like I said, there's only five of them. They're very short. Which, guess what? Don't mention a recorder. Right. Sorry. I'm, I know I'm being very critical. But also. Anyway. I mean, the recorders aren't supposed to fall apart. No. Like, that's the whole point, is that they're supposed to be able to survive impact. In the moment when they're needed the most, it didn't hold up. So. But I bet they changed that. <laughs> <laughs> well, over time, yes, things have changed vastly with, right, with the recorders. They recommended that indicators, which are not fully accurate, be masked. What do they mean by that? We kind of talked about this briefly. They're talking about the Doppler system having the distance-to-go indicator, which indicates in hundreds of nautical miles, which is not accurate at all. Or useful. Or useful. I don't even know why anybody would look at that, or why it would be on there at all. Which is why they're suggesting to mask it, whereas I believe the correct recommendation would be fix it. Yeah, remove it. Just make sure it's not there. Or just train the crews that that is not a usable instrument for distance. I know it's the more expensive solution, but the system that was already installed that wasn't talking to the KLM standard system, that Mm -hmm. Canadian system I mentioned, Mm -hmm. they should have removed the existing system so that it would talk to each other. Right. What's the point of installing the Doppler indicator if you can't use it? Right. They don't think about that kind of stuff. Clearly not. They recommend that cockpit crew be briefed in detail about all non-standard instrumentation. So again, this being a non-standard instrument to the airplane for them, they should have been briefed about it. And understandably... It also doesn't mean that they weren't briefed about it, though. Right. Because they don't have the dispatch details, because those were not maintained, those were not kept, and they also don't have the cockpit briefing card. Right. Because it was a flammable card in the cockpit. Yep. Guess what didn't survive? Yeah, anything flammable. The cockpit in Most of the airplane. (laughs) Uh, They recommend that regardless of experience of cockpit crew, charter operators ensure that route checks are carried out prior to detailing cockpit crew on sustained operations on a new route. That's a really roundabout way of saying that no matter that this was a charter flight, 
they should have done a little bit of root proving for the crew more than just beyond a briefing. They really should have flown it with a crew that knows how to fly it. Knows where they're going. First. Knows what they're doing. So that they know what to do. They recommend that charter operators ensure that operating cockpit crew demonstrate an adequate knowledge of route to be flown and aerodromes, or airports, which are to be used in terms of Chapter 9, Paragraph 9.4.3.2 of of Annex 6 to the convention. ICAO convention. Yeah. Right. Yes, they're, they're speaking to something that already exists. That's the thing that I have a problem with there. They're just saying that basically they need to do it. Martin Air didn't. And the last one, short. They recommend that ground operations personnel of operators be adequately briefed regarding their responsibilities. In other words, don't throw out the docs. Yeah, that changed. Keep your records. Yeah. Yeah, like throwing away documents is just sketch. Yeah. It makes me feel like you're doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. Most airlines require that you keep uh, all flight documents, anything related to dispatching an aircraft for up to 90 days. Now, of course, we have digital. That's it? Yep. I mean, 90 days, right? Like, you would hope after 90 days you wouldn't need that information. There are certain pieces of information from those flights that you have to keep for up to two years. So, the source of my surprise comes from the fact that I've worked in the finance and accounting industry for Mm -hmm. so long. Mm -hmm. Our retention schedules, which Mm -hmm. is what they are called, Mm -hmm. are usually like four to seven years. Yep. Well, yeah, but for fiscal stuff, that makes sense. But you guys get to keep them digitally, right? And that's it, right? Well, the four to seven years included paper when, because I I was in charge of the retention schedule Mm -hmm. when I worked for an educational institution who was, um, until I was there, antiquated and still worked with a lot of paper. Right. But I'm sure you guys now, where you work, are mostly digital, right? Yes. So with the airlines, you have to keep paper copies, most airlines. Depending on the airline, for example, us Which still surprise that that surprises me more because we are allowed to keep digital copies for less time. And if right. you're required to te- keep paper copies, that's when it really needs to be kept for a long time. But imagine for us, for example, I won't state my airline, but for us, imagine in a hub with 300 flights a day and each one of those flights has a dozen pieces of paperwork involved generally totaling 20, 30 some odd pages, that adds up very quickly. Also, where do you store that? There are entire companies dedicated to retention. I'm aware of that, but they have to be accessible on the spot. Yes. Those companies are intended to do that. Mm -hmm. They have to be. I would go so far as to say, I think it's more important in this industry because people die. Right. Yes. Yes. People's lives can be destroyed fiscally. But past 90 days, what are you going to need? In this case, I would have liked to see records of the previous reports of the stupid indicator. Sure. Was everyone briefed on it previously? How long have they been being briefed on it? Right. But those kinds of things don't necessarily get kept either. Well, the briefings. Why, why would you want to keep that longer than like a year? Like, I don't know. At some point, there's just too much paperwork. Where are you even going to be able to find it in all the you're gonna be other digging, paperwork you're gonna be digging too that much. you're going to end up having to... Yeah, but I mean, that's the job of investigators. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But also, generally, these are kept at the station of departure, so that means you would have to go to each station the aircraft has been at for an entire 90 days to find those docks. That's also their job, though. In the digital age, it's easier when you keep digital records. But 
Sorry for the tangent. So we have systems that do that. And mind you, our digital systems can keep records for years, but that's a whole different thing. Anyway, that's it. That's all. Okay, people. Okay. That was, I don't even remember the airline. Martin Air. Martin Air Flight 183? Close, 138. Ah, 138. Yes, Martin Air 138. Thanks so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Also, uh, like we, oh, we might have a listener question. Hold up. Oh. I think I saw that there was a new one, but I haven't checked to see. Yes, we do have one. Okay. Okay. We have a listener question. Listener question. Oh, God. Uh oh, is it really long? That's a yes because she has to copy and paste it. Yep. So this question comes from our listener Leo regarding the m- most recent episode that just came out, Air Tindy Flight Five Hundred Three. Ooh. He says, "Hi guys, Leo here. Just wanted to make a few comments about this episode. One, Plicho Yati is one of the official languages of the Northwest Territories and translates to dog rib language." Okay. Two, the name Northwest Territories dates all the way back to colonial times and has steadily decreased in size as its land was reallocated to different provinces and territories. A bunch of northern Ontario, northern Quebec, and all of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Yukon, and Nunavut was originally Northwest Territories. That makes sense. That actually makes a lot of sense. Thirdly, you actually mentioned one of my suggestions at the very end of the podcast. In fact, you actually read out the portion of Air Tindy's Wikipedia page that I added in not too long ago. Like, he personally added it. Nice. You'll find out a lot more about that, Axel, when you eventually get to my recommendations next year. Cool. Thanks for reading. Well, that's not so much a question, but uh, I do appreciate you throwing that in there. I can assume that you live in Canada. <laughs> I have a feeling you know some things about Canada. this. I have a feeling you know some things about this because you might be a local. You might perhaps have gone to Canadian public school and understand the history behind the provinces. We were taught some very basic Canadian history in our you school. You were? Yes, back in elementary school. You weren't taught, like, Canadian history? No! They teach you about the territories? No! Nothing? No! The provinces? No! What? <laughs> what school did you go to? The we same ba- district you guys went to? We barely... When? What year? Because I didn't move to this school district till third grade. I was after that. It was probably fourth or fifth grade. Fourth grade's Colorado history. It is, yeah. Which we also did. No, that's... All we did. We did that. I don't know, but I know I learned some Canadian... The, the, the things that I know that you Geography learned, and history. You learn in fourth grade, you learn Colorado history, and you learn about clouds. Those were the big things I picked up in fourth grade. Fair enough. That's why I learned all I the I remember the types. Colorado history thing. I don't remember the cloud thing. But my fourth grade year was also the year I had two different teachers, and it was horrible. So, Fair anyway. Enough. I actually had two different teachers in third grade, too. Well, mine was fourth grade. Yeah, mine was third grade. Fourth grade, I had one teacher, and nobody liked him. <laughs> well, damn. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. We do appreciate it. Um, You should check out all the stuff on the website, because like, I, I do a lot of stuff, and I'd like to see some appreciation for it. <laughs> so, damn. Saying. Although, I do appreciate Leo for like saying that, because like, I don't know anything about Canada. You're I, learning little things I, here and there I as barely, we go here. I barely know uh, names of some of the provinces. Um, barely. I've, I've learned a lot from TikTok because a lot of TikTokers are from Canada and they don't get paid because TikTok doesn't have a Canadian creators fund. creators fund the way the U.S. does. So there's another fun fact about Canada. Are you sure? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
because one of the TikTokers I listened to, the one with the, the spreadsheet girl, mm-hmm. the one who does the spreadsheet about all the MLMs. I've talked about it before. Yeah. She lives in Saskatchewan. She always points people to the buy her a coffee thing in her bio because she doesn't get paid from TikTok. Then yep. how does Call Me Chris... Uh, sponsors. Oh. You, and you YouTube. Might, you might recall a Vessi. Well, yeah. Like, I know that she has sponsors, but she doesn't have, like, a ridiculous amount of sponsors. No, but she, now she's on YouTube and she gets sponsors to getting... go to events and she's she's famous now, so she well, yeah. goes to things that pay her money. And Charlotte Debray is the same way. She also relies on YouTube rather than TikTok. Well, Charlotte did YouTube primarily, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry, side tangent about Canada. Canada. The many things you will learn about Canada over time. <laughs> I have learned much, but I also knew a lot. Mayhaps by the time you hear this, we might be in have recently in Canada. By the time you hear this, we will have been in Canada four days ago. Three days ago. Theoretically. Hopefully. Yes. We will have been well. somewhere in Canada. Yep. Either Toronto or Montreal. I'm hoping Montreal. Yes. I like both. I like just not being here. Anyway. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. We do appreciate it. You should do all the thingies. And, and you should be a patron and give us all your money. And <laughs> Also, go support Canada TikTok Canadian, or something. Yes. Canadian. Just Canadian pe- uh, content creators in general. Like yes. They make good content. Yes. I think a good portion of the people that I watch are from Can- Canada Same. or the UK. Probably. Like, I don't watch very many American content creators. So, and I, I, some, some of that's like not on purpose. It just ends up being that just, way. Yeah. It just be that way. So thanks so much for listening. We do appreciate it. And we hope you have a safe and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.